0: Well, please take your Bibles and open them to the book of John, if you've not already done so, and begin reading silently as I read aloud. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, "'Who are you?' He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, "'I am not the Christ.' And they asked him, "'What then? Are you Elijah?' He said, "'I am not. Are you the prophet?' And he answered, "'No.'" But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John the Baptist boldly directs our attention to the Lamb of God so that sinners will trust in his completed sacrificial work for forgiveness of sins, toward the goal of displaying that biblically and fundamentally Christian reality. Point number one, John announces the coming of the unknown Lord while the Christ was prophesied. When he arrived, those who should have known him did not know him. Now, an obviously false Christology is one who declares that Jesus was not resurrected from the dead or that he never existed. But the less obvious one is the one that declares him to be man but not God. That's a heretical, damning Christology. It's a false Christology. An even less obvious false Christology is one that declares him to be God but not man. The idea that he is God, but that he was not actually man. That was an image. That was an appearance, but not really a physical man. The one true Christ of Scripture, the God man, is God in eternity past, and he is man inside time, space, and history, which he created. It's a miracle. But that's the truth of the Christology of the Bible. And without that, a person is not in him. He's in some other Christ if he's in a Christ. If he's in a Jesus, it's a false Jesus if it's not that Jesus. And this is the black and white reality that is so easily blurred and watered down, not only by the cults of Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses and others, but by those in what seem to be solid Protestant churches today who act as if and even speak as if it's not that important. It's critical. You must know the true Christ. And to be swayed by a false Christology is to be not only unsaved, it's to be deceived into thinking you are saved critical that you search this out and you know from Scripture, the Christ of the Bible, you would repent of your sins and believe in him rather than pursuing some man-made, man-designed, man-driven, man-dependent Christology that enables you in and of yourself with assistance from God to pursue and to know him. It's not the true Christ. You can't do that with the true Christ. You don't need assistance from God. You need God to awaken you. You need God to take you from death unto life. You need God to transfer you from being deaf, spiritually deaf, unto having ears that hear. You need God to open your blind eyes. But as long as a person is yet blind spiritually and yet deaf spiritually and dead spiritually, he will not only believe that his salvation is dependent on something he did in the past, he will do everything he possibly can to persuade other people to do the same thing, ushering them into a false conversion. Rest in him be passionately and boldly willing to display the falsehood of all false Christology and recognize that there are those in Christ who don't yet have the biblical knowledge and awareness to see his sovereignty, to see that what he has accomplished is something that he and he alone could accomplish. John announces the coming of the unknown Lord. In our era, in our day, the Lord is much unknown. That's not to say that people haven't heard of him or don't even use his name on occasion. It's not even to say that they don't gather for the purpose of worshiping someone who has that name. The idea is that he is unknown to them. Why? Because they have a false definition of who he is and do not live like they know Christ. They live like they want other people to think that they know Christ. They are not devoted to the body of Christ. They are not devoted to the glory of Christ. And they will do everything they can to undermine the true teaching of the true Christ. Because they do not know him. While they are subject to the truth, they reject it. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? This testimony, this depiction of who John is and what he believes and what his convictions are. John the Apostle explores for us the testimony of John the Baptist. Our text says, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Well, who are these Jews? Just the whole nation of the Jews? See, not all Jews are against Jesus. So was this all the Jews? They didn't represent all the Jews, obviously, whoever these Jews were. No. Is it all the Pharisees? No, there were about 6,000 of them. John 1, 11 says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And as you look through the Scripture, as you look through the narrative texts that display the interaction between Jesus and Jewish people, People. It was primarily Jewish leaders, Jewish religious leaders. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, and that was because they were committed to following false leaders who were Jews. And in their leadership, they led them astray from the Christ who had come. John uses the term Jews in various ways, but here it's clearly a reference to the Jewish leaders as they have sent a particular group of subordinate Jewish leaders to represent them in the priests and the Levites. See, they had authority, these Jewish leaders, to send the more subordinate Jewish leaders. And why did they send them? They, of course, knew of and anticipated the coming of the Christ. Their hope was distorted into the hope that he would be a political leader or even a military hero. So they wanted to know. Is this the Christ? Is this the Messiah? We know that because John says, no, I'm not. In fact, it says he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Malachi 4.5 tells us, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. This is an Old Testament prophecy of the coming of this person, Elijah. These Jews, uh, these Levites, were more likely testing John to determine whether or not he was portraying himself as Elijah, not whether or not he actually was. They were likely testing him to see if he was a false Elijah. They would have known that there would be a false Elijah. In Matthew 11 verse 11, truly I say to you among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force for all the prophets and the law prophesied until john and if you are willing to accept it he is elijah who is to come who has ears to hear let him hear it would certainly seem as if jesus is saying john is elijah matthew 17:8 and when they lifted up their eyes they saw no one but jesus only and Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. It's kind of clear. How's that possible? Is this a contradiction? Was John trying to hide the fact from the Jews that he was, in fact, the Elijah that was prophesied in the Old Testament? It's not unusual for someone to be something and not even know that it's true. So it's quite reasonable that John, while he came with a purpose, John knew why he was there. He knew what it was that he was to do. He wouldn't have known that he was, in fact, the Elijah prophesied in the Old Testament. There's really no other explanation for this. John wouldn't have lied. He wouldn't have tried to hide that truth from them. There is no reason for us to think that John the Baptist actually knew that that was who he was. Simple reality is he didn't know. Why is this significant, though? And you've got to ask the question, why would that be recorded? Why would the Lord ordain that this would be recorded in Scripture? The only logical conclusion? To exhibit John's humility. John wasn't concerned about position. I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. John wasn't concerned about a title so common in the evangelical church. People want to have a position rather than a role. John knew he had a role. His role was to serve. His role was to pave the way, so to speak, or really to declare that others are to pave the way, to declare the coming of the Lord and to tell others, make the way, make the way straight. Well, they then go further and ask, are you the prophet? John said, no. Now, you and I could say, no, John is a prophet. What did they mean by, are you the prophet? Deuteronomy 18, 15 says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen John, no doubt, was an Old Testament prophet. His life and ministry took place prior to the death and resurrection of Christ. In fact, he wouldn't live to see the death and resurrection of Christ. But in John's mind, he certainly was not the prophet. He was of no acclaim in his mind. Like we said a couple of weeks ago, there was nothing in John about John. John was not interested in declaring John himself to be something worthy of note. They probed more deeply. It wouldn't be enough for them to go back to the Jews and answer the question, who John is not. They would feel the need to say who he is. They said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now this is familiarity with Old Testament text that leads him to the place where he's at least willing to say, what Isaiah said, that's what I'm doing. Do I need to be known as the one who is Elijah, the one who is the prophet? Uh, Just not interested. But what I am committed to, what I am interested in is being the voice that proclaims make straight the way of the Lord. Isaiah 40 verse 3 says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be relieved, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What amazing geographical imagery that anyone can comprehend. Right out of college, I worked on radio and television towers. These are the really tall, thin, you know, orange and white towers. It's a little bit scary at first, but I... Recall one night late when I had climbed to the top of a 1,200-foot tower to replace the lightning rods. And as I'm up there, I'm thinking, I can't just do this. I've really got to enjoy this moment. It was dark. I'm in the middle of Wisconsin. And I look out, and I just see the shape of the earth lit up all across. And I'm thinking, I may never have another opportunity like this. I have this straight shot with my eye, as far as my eye can see, probably to the farthest direct distance from me that I will ever have. And I stayed there and took it in for quite a while. I remember one time working during the day and looking down and seeing a a bald eagle fly by, and I thought, how many people have the opportunity to to look down (laughs) on a bald eagle as it's soaring through the air? What an amazing experience that was. But I realized I have no idea how far I could see. I just know that there was nothing obstructing my view. The only thing that prevented me from seeing further is the limitations of my own vision. Isaiah and John declared, remove the obscurities. This is a geographical Illustration for the purpose of calling all those who would hear, all those who would see, all those who would listen to eliminate the obstructions of the heart. Whatever the obstruction is, remove it. Get past your hang-ups. There are those in Jesus' day, and there are those in our day who are so committed to splitting hairs theologically and saying, no, that can't be right when it's a secondary issue that they will never come to know the true Christ of the Bible. There are those who are so passionately committed to their heresy about the person of Christ that they can't get past the offense of the sovereign grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in their passion for their own self-exaltation and their pride, they reject the reality of who he is. John announces the the coming of this unknown Lord. To whom is he unknown? He's unknown to the Pharisees, to the Jews, to the Sadducees, to the scribes, to the Levites. Isaiah 53 says this, "'Who has believed what he has heard from us? "'And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? "'For he grew up before him like a young plant "'and like a root out of dry ground.' He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. What movie have you seen that depicts this Christ? It doesn't exist. He's always the best looking guy with a SAG license, with a you know a license to, to act, and you know, the guy's got the you know the long you know brown flowing hair and you know every detail that they think that's going to draw folks in to watch the movie. He was despised and rejected by men. We sing a song called "Man of Sorrows." Why? Because he was a man of sorrows. There was nothing about him that would draw anyone to him. And so those who didn't know him then and those who don't know him now are looking for a different Jesus. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. So often that passage here and in 1 Peter 2 is misused to let people think that they somehow are going to experience physical healing. It's not about physical healing. It's about spiritual healing. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, that's the Jesus. That's the Jesus who efficaciously saves those for whom he died. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. On whom was the iniquity laid? On him. Whose iniquity was it? All. Does that mean every person in the world? If that were true, then every person in the world would experience forgiveness of sins. This Jesus, this man of God, this God-man, this unknown Lord was announced by John. And John's role was all that he was concerned about. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. It was John who boldly proclaimed the truth about the person of God. Jesus. I don't know that there's more confusion anywhere than there is in the evangelical church that misunderstands the person of Christ. See, once this is clarified, and once a person subjects himself to it, the life begins to change. You begin to acknowledge and recognize that this is how sanctification takes place. It's the true Christ who produces sanctification. When I obey Him, not some sort of pseudo Jesus that requires of me some sort of partnership, some sort of synergistic effort to bring myself to Him. It is about what He accomplished. When I rest in that and I obey Him, then He is glorified and I am sanctified. Well, point number two, John declares the greatness of the unknown Lord. He not only announces the coming of the unknown Lord. He declares the greatness of the unknown Lord. Verse 24 says, Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Pharisees were infamously devoted to the letter of the law with a serious penchant for avoiding the spirit of the law. Have you ever been that person who's so committed to the details of what other people say and what you choose to hold them required to do, and yet at the moment that they begin to exhibit a willingness to obey the spirit of the law, you say, oh, that's not enough. Or maybe you've done that with yourself. Maybe the Lord's producing spiritual growth in you and you say, yeah, but it's just not exactly what Jesus required. You're never going to accomplish that. But as you devote yourself to the jots and tittles of the law of God and recognize that the spirit of the law is what Jesus is calling you to, you'll begin to grow. The Pharisees, on the other hand, weren't growing because they weren't alive. They were committed to their own self-righteous accomplishments They were a little more innovative than the Sadducees. The Sadducees frowned on the Pharisees because the Sadducees held exclusively to the authority of the written word alone. The Pharisees had this amalgamation of a devotion to the letter of the law along with their own innovation, and so they were at odds with one another. They, having sent these individuals to John to check him out, were hypocritical in their own devotion to the letter of the law while they themselves diverted from it to produce their own innovative efforts to convince people to follow them. They were willing to misuse Ezekiel 36.25, which says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. They use this for requiring self-baptism from their subjects. You see, baptism is not new in the religious world Uh, with the Christian faith. It was a common tradition uh, within Judaism, a false tradition. Most often, the tradition required that the person being baptized, baptize himself. On top of that, that he do it on a regular basis. And it was mostly rooted in this passage in Ezekiel, which is a figurative passage, not calling for physical baptism, true water baptism. Their baptism was a proselytizing baptism, though. It was intended to graft Gentiles into the Jewish faith, into Judaism. Jesus' baptism is referenced in 1 Peter 3, 21. And this is a baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is a a beautiful acknowledgement uh, in, in my assessment that when someone comes to the awareness of the fact Uh, that water baptism is just symbolic and that it symbolizes Holy Spirit baptism, you can really see the lights coming on. In uh, the privilege that I have often had to do marriage counseling, we go through this passage and I will ask the question, it's in written form, does baptism save you? And um, many times the answer is split right down the middle. One will say yes and the other will say no. And, of course, the answer is yes. Yes. It does, because the text tells you it does. And then some might say, well, no, it doesn't. Baptism doesn't save you. It's, it's just symbolic. Well, the question is, which baptism are we talking about? The question that I'm asking in the counseling is related to what Peter said. Peter said, baptism saves you. He's talking about Holy Spirit baptism. The baptism that Jesus provides for us is symbolized in John's baptism. And with the Jews, with the Pharisees in particular, their baptism was one of proselytization of Gentiles into the Jewish faith. John's baptizing Jews. Why would a Jew need to be baptized? Well, reference John 1.13. You're not given the right to become a child of God by blood. So being of the Jewish race does not make you a child of God, it's God who does that. Peter says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ symbolized in coming up out of the water. That expressive joy that displays the eternal joy of experiencing the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the baptism of the Holy Spirit that produces life. The way Peter says it in chapter 1, verse 3, is that you've been caused to be born again. You didn't choose that baptism. You couldn't have chosen that baptism. You choose the water baptism out of obedience as a representation of the baptism you've been granted, which is symbolized in John's baptism. So why would the prophets be wanting to check this out? Well, because in their method of baptism or in their mindset or their philosophy of baptism, the whole idea was to make people be Jews, not to stop being Jews. In Matthew 3, verse 5... We read, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. John felt strongly in this moment that it was important for him to call them what they were. He said, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Why would he ask that? because they weren't interested in fleeing from the wrath to come. They were interested in what was going on, and maybe even possibly interested in being known as someone who was baptized by this flavor of the week, really popular prophet who happened to be in town baptizing people. That's what they wanted. This would have been an offensive practice to them. But John here, as you see, as you know, is declaring the greatness of the unknown Lord in his baptizing. Verse 26 says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know. Seems like a strange reference because he's talking about baptism, they're talking about baptism, and suddenly he's talking about this person that they don't know. He's directing their attention in as abrupt a way as possible, as quick a path as possible, back to the issue at hand, and that is the person of Christ. I baptize with water But listen, there's a real issue we need to talk about. There's one who stands among you. There is one who has been walking the earth. There is one who is worthy of your attention. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. John has already pointed out the fact that he is greater than John. He is of higher rank than I. Why? Because he came before me. We spent much time on this last week that Jesus is, in fact, the creator. That's why he ranks more highly than John. He ranks more highly than everyone. And in that higher ranking, he's worthy of John's attention, but he is unknown to them. He says, you don't know him. You know, you might find yourself in this predicament, right? (laughs) He's talking to religious leaders sent by authoritative, powerful religious leaders. And he's referencing Scripture, which they know, that they would have said, well, of course we know him. Now, this is all leading up to John chapter 8 that we talked about last week where Jesus says, I am he. He's saying to them, you don't know the one you think you know. Oh, and by the way, you might have walked by him last week and you didn't recognize him. You probably heard him speaking in a synagogue or somewhere along the way and you missed him. He's great. He is so great that I am not worthy to do that, which I wouldn't even be allowed to do. In the Jewish rabbinic tradition, a teacher could require of his students nearly anything except the menial and nasty task of untying their sandals. John's saying even if he would allow me to not worthy to do even that the most menial task that's below the lowest of slaves that's his greatness john might have said i don't matter what matters is my role What matters is my function, what I'm here to do. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now, there's a lot of confusion over this matter of Bethany. Was it the nearby Bethany? No. It's the only Bethany we know of in biblical history. Why do we know that? Because he says it's the Bethany across the Jordan. It's a distinctly and drastically different location. A handful of other names of other cities that are close enough in their literary structure that he could be referring to them, and that's probably what this is. The looseness of spelling in that day was such that it's very different from what takes place in our day. Someone misspells your name by one letter. You notice, not in the day of Jesus. You've often wondered that, haven't you? You see various names spelled differently, especially in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, multiple examples of that. Not an issue. And a lot of that has to do with not just translation, but transliteration. Uh, We always say some things get lost in translation. One of the things that gets lost in translation is something that really doesn't matter a lot, and that's how things are spelled. You know, some people get all up in arms because you, you misspelled the word Emmanuel one time. Is it an I or is it an E? It doesn't matter. What matters is that you're drawing from the true Hebrew reality of what the syllables mean, what they represent, and what they represent in Scripture. And so here, uh, the word Bethany could likely be a reference to another city by a similar name. But it's certainly not the nearby Bethany. We know that because John tells us it's on the other side of the Jordan. But John's declaring here the greatness of this Unknown Lord. He's saying that these things took place where John was baptizing. The issue is that John was baptizing so that the way of the Lord may have been made straight. John's proclaiming with his voice the need for those who don't know him to make the way straight. Remove whatever stands in the way of a direct line, a direct visual shot to the person of the Lord. Point number three, John introduces the unknown Lord as the Lamb of God. He introduces this unknown Lord as the Lamb of God. In verse 7 of Isaiah 53, we read, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. His mouth. Verse 29 in our text says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, John is speaking to a primarily non Jewish audience. Uh, that's why on occasion you'll see him use a word and he'll say, Which means? You know, rabbi, which means teacher. He's explaining these Jewish terms to his mostly non-Jewish audience. But when he uses the term Lamb of God, no one would have been unfamiliar with what he's pointing to. He's pointing to the focal point of the sacrificial system. Isaiah 53 speaks of not only that sacrificial system, but the person who is the type to which the system points the whole point, if you will, of that sacrificial system. See, when a sacrifice was made in the Old Testament era, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, it was always a spotless lamb, a spotless animal of some sort. And the idea behind the spotlessness was that it represented the sinlessness of the one who would need to take on the sinfulness of those who needed salvation. You say, well, what did those animals ever do wrong? Well, that's the whole point. Their spotlessness was representative physically, but the reality is they didn't do anything wrong to deserve the taking on of the sins of Israel. It was representative. It was symbolic. Similarly to how baptism is simply symbolic. But the lamb that would ultimately receive this punishment was not only figuratively Clean, figuratively sinless, figuratively spotless. He was literally sinless. Maybe the most memorable depiction of this theological reality comes to us in Genesis chapter 22, the experience between Abraham and his son Isaac. You know the story. Abraham receives instructions from God to sacrifice his son, and so he obeys. There's some indication that he may have thought he misunderstood the Lord, but he didn't, and he made certain that he didn't. And so he prepares the way to sacrifice his son. As he's about to do so in obedience to the Lord, the text of Scripture tells us, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, caught in a thicket by his own horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. This, of course, after the Lord said to him, don't lay a hand on him. Abraham experienced the efficaciousness of the coming Lord's death. The Lord nurtured in him by way of this experience in his life that we see recorded in Scripture a complete dependence on what would actually happen and what would actually be the result. There was no need for Abraham to go through with what the Lord had tested him with because what Christ would ultimately accomplish was exactly enough. The sacrificial system was never enough. It was always a picture it was always symbolic as john points to this lamb of god as he refers to him he says he is the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world first john 2:2 tells us he is the propitiation for our sins he is the satisfaction He is not an opportunity for the satisfaction. He is not a choice that one might choose for satisfaction. He is the satisfaction. He is the propitiation. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And we believe this wholeheartedly, for the sins of the whole world. What does he mean by that? Does he mean every single person in the world? It's not what he says. It's not what he says. We see the death of this Lamb of God resulting in its intended outcome in Revelation 5, where we are told that it reaches those in every tongue, tribe, and nation, representative of the whole world. Were he to have provided propitiation for every single person in the world, then there would never, ever be anyone in hell. But what Christ accomplished was represented when John pointed to him as the Lamb of God. Was the sacrificial system up to that point, in that day, which was referenced in the phrase, the Lamb of God, efficacious for every single person in the world? No. It was for every Jew who would be faithful to Judaism and for every Gentile who would be willing to be grafted in. Same is true today. The efficaciousness of the work of the Lamb of God is, in fact, sufficient for every single person in the world, but it is efficient, it is efficacious. It will certainly result in propitiation because it is propitiation for all of the elect. That Christ is worthy of worship. He is worthy of our obedience. He's worthy of our homage. He's worthy of our allegiance. Revelation 6, 17 says, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Who? Who will he do that for? Those that he shepherds, those that he, as the text says, guides. Revelation thirteen eight says, And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. This is a call to observe and trust and obey and worship the true Lamb of God to whom John points. As he has pointed to the coming of the unknown Lord and as he has declared the greatness of the unknown Lord, he introduces this unknown Lord as the Lamb of God. He says again, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And something really amazing uh, is that to which John is pointing at this moment. He's referencing really an amazing reality. He's saying here, I didn't know him. This must be yours and my commitment as well to be willing to acknowledge that there was a time when we did not recognize him. There was a time when we had a false view of the Christ of Scripture. And in that, we had a false view of sanctification. We had a false view of Christianity. And we probably fooled ourselves more than anyone else, but we fooled others. I myself did not know him. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. I came to baptize in his name for this purpose. And so the Israelites, the Jews, the Pharisees, the Levites, the Sadducees, they're all coming out to see what's going on with this one who's baptizing with water. John says, I'm glad because my purpose for baptizing is that this one, the one who is unknown to you, that he would be revealed to you. Verse 32 says, and John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John baptizes with water, but this one whom you don't know is the one who baptizes the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Acts 3 verse 34 says, God gives the Spirit without limit. In that the Spirit of God rested upon the person of Christ permanently he would remain on him is the reality of that of the believer the person who says you know i used to be a christian but i you know i changed my mind about that that's not true the person who says you know you you come to know christ but then you have this other anointing this extra blessing this move of the holy spirit that you have the ministry of the holy spirit no that's not true the person in whom the Holy Spirit dwells is a person in whom the Holy Spirit always dwells. He remained upon Jesus permanently. He remains on and in the believer permanently. Verse 34 says, And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So he changes terminology here, really shifts gears here. What is this idea that he is the Son of God? Isaiah 42.1 says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, he will bring forth justice to the nations. Why does John change gears here? he's been talking about or he has spoken of Jesus as the Lamb of God. he's pointed to the fact that when the Holy Spirit rested upon him in the form of the dove, then I knew him. Then it became clear to me this is the one who is the Christ, he is the anointed one, he is the Messiah. I knew that because Scripture prophesied that the Holy Spirit would rest on him and remain on him like a dove. So it was clear for John. Why then point to the matter of him being the Son of God? Here's why. In 1 John 5, verse 20, he says, And we know that the Son of God has come And has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his son Jesus Christ. He is the true God of eternal life. He says earlier, these things have been written that you may know that he is the Christ, the son of God. And that in believing you may have life in him. It might seem like a broken record, But I won't be surprised if a couple weeks or a month from now or a few months from now or a handful of years from now someone looks back and says, you know, as we were going through the book of John, I realized I wasn't in Christ. I had worshiped a false Christ. I had conjured up ideas and I had embraced ideas from other folks. I spent a lot of time on the Internet just checking out a lot of different things. And the purity of the pure milk of the word, of the gospel, of John, destroyed my theology. And I recognized that the Christ is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. Revelation 5, 6 says, In between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, Are you to take the scroll and to open its seals? For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels And glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. What an unlikely object of worship. Have you ever seen a lamb? When you saw it, did you think? You know, I feel like kneeling down before him and singing to him. No. It's feeble. It's frail. It's weak. There's a sense in which it's defenseless. It's innocent. But it is really the perfect picture of the sinless one who would come and bear the sins of all those who would trust in him and have belief in him and repent of their sins. But if there's not an interest in your heart, if there's not a deepening, increasing desire in your life to worship this lamb, then you might question whether or not you know the lamb of God. John was willing and confident to say, behold, the lamb of God. The one who is slain for the sins of the world. That ought to be the confidence of our hearts. Should it not be our passion to be sharing truth with those who are deceived? Those who play the game. Those who want to be seen as knowing Christ. And yet, when they hear truth, they reject it. Run from it. They get glassy-eyed over it. It's boring. That should be a telltale sign for the person who's not growing in passion for the person of Christ. You know, uh, more of you than I can ever remember in our church have said to me, I'm so excited about what we're getting ready to study. I I, I really, I I don't know how many, but it's many of you have said, I'm so excited about the book of John, I'm, I'm so already enjoying the book of John, I'm electrified myself over the book of John, I explained some of that last week. And yet, there are those who are bored with the book of John. Nobody's told me that, if you're wondering. But certainly, the one who doesn't know him won't be moved by the reality of who he is and what he has done. Those who don't know him will do everything they possibly can to create some sort of minor twist, or maybe even a major twist, on who he is and what he has done. Why? Because it prevents them from dealing with the reality of their soul. It's a diversion. It draws them away from the reality that Christ died for sinners. The Lamb of God gave his life for everyone who would trust him. And anything other than that, any... Devotion to discussion that results in, you know, 10 minutes and then an hour and then, you know, weeks and months just focusing on this one hang up. Anything other than a pure devotion to the reality that the Lamb of God gave Himself for sinners. It's a diversion. This is where our hope should be. I I trust that you will. Hope to know whether or not you know him. That you won't rest in some decision you made when you were five. Not that you couldn't have come to know Christ when you are five, but trust me, that's really unusual. But that what you will trust in is that this one who came, that John announced, who was the unknown Lord to many who should have known him, When he declared his greatness, the greatness of this unknown Lord, he drew our attention to the reality that he is the Lamb of God who sacrificially and sinlessly took on the sins of the world. And when he did, he drew a line. And that line separates those who will focus on the efficacious work of the Lamb of God that results not only in forgiveness but sanctification. That line will separate those folks who are devoted to purity, devoted to righteousness, devoted to sanctification, devoted to the body of Christ, devoted to serving faithfully, devoted to the glory of God. The line runs starkly, obviously, as John says in 1 John 3.10. It runs starkly between that group of folks and those who just want to argue. They just want to cast aspersions on the character of those who preach truth. They want to do everything they can to have the appearance of godliness, yet without power. And when they're challenged with the reality that there's no power, right? There's no sanctification. There's no spiritual growth going on in your life. I don't see you devoted to Christ, devoted to the body, serving the body, helping others grow, growing yourself. Well, you know, I'm not really all that thrilled about the theology. Your soul is on the line. Your soul is on the line. The one who would rest in the Lamb of God, who has taken away the sin of the world, is going to be committed to the glory of that Lamb and the salvation of those for whom he died. Father, we rest in that Lamb. Lord, we want to be the faithful, unobscured, straightway to the Lord. We want to be the voice of reason, the voice that says, make straight the way of the Lord. Lord, we want to be those who have credibility to be able to say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Lord, let that be our message Let it be our unpolluted message, our unobscured message. And may it be that as that is our message, people will come to know this Lamb of God and experience the forgiveness of sins. It's in this Lamb's name that we pray.